0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
1: Just so as Rin mentioned, uh, the vision we had for these last minutes, you know, we have about 45 minutes left, is for us together to kind of paint pictures of what wise speech, liberating speech, healing speech, loving speech, what that looks like, You know, even within our own mind, like our internal dialogues, and then in our intimate relations, in our work scenes, all the different places in the world that we're interacting, showing up, having relationships. So I'll say a few things, but uh, we'll save about 10 minutes before we end to do a little closing circle. But while I'm sharing, if you have thoughts, either about what I'm saying or about this general theme, like, Well, what does wise speech, wise silence, wise listening, what does that look like functionally, actually, in the messy, imperfect world that we are always navigating through? And we've talked a lot already, and people have discussed too, um, about this commitment to truthfulness. And one way... Um, to sort of, you know, as we meet, move forward as people who speak and who listen and who have relationships, is really changing our relationship to truth, what we think of as being true, or what I think I know, and and have this kind of deepening sense that truth is a changing, it's not a fixed thing, right? It's a changing, evolving, And it's a changing, evolving thing that always requires a group dynamic. It's not like any one person owns the truth, has the truth. It's something that, it's like a truth. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, it's like a story that we're telling each other, sharing, like we're taking turns telling. So it's, in the same way a story keeps going on and on, the truth is something that we're sort of co-creating together. And so in that, when we have that understanding about truth, then we're less likely to use truth to shore up a sense of self, you know, an ego, because it, it just doesn't work. It only, like if it's a concrete block, truth, then it makes sense for me to sort of rely on it <clears throat> to protect myself or to puts you down or something like to establish like, yeah, this is how it is because this is the truth and the truth says it's like this. But when we take that idea away from truth and we realize truth is an evolving, not a set thing, it's an evolving thing, it's always changing, it will never be done, right? And it relies on something we co-create. So it's sort of a whole different, it has a whole different sort of relationship to how, like our speech. Let me just read a few things. This first thing someone sent me, after the last time I did one of these workshops on why speech, um, somebody in our community sent me this quote from Ann Truitt, who I guess was a well-known sculptor, or maybe still is a well-known sculptor. And this person wrote, Unless we are very, very careful, we doom each other by holding on to images of one another based on preconceptions that are, that are in turn based on indifference to what is other than ourselves. Right? So we're dependent on our fixed views of another. Right? And we're, we become indifferent to what's showing up because we have this fixed idea. This indifference can be, in its extreme, a form of murder. and seems to me a rather common phenomenon. We claim autonomy for ourselves and forget that in doing so, and forget that in so doing, we can fall into the tyranny of defining other people as we would like them to be, right? Based on our ideas. And she continues... By focusing on what we choose to acknowledge in them, we impose an insidious control on them. I notice that I have to pay careful attention in order to listen to others with an openness that allows them to be as they are, or as they think themselves to be. Have you caught yourself sometimes, you know, with this last line, as they think themselves to be? It's like, we're so quick to say, oh, that's just what they think themselves to be, right? But what we don't catch is that the idea we have of them is unquestionably true, right? <laughs> but their idea of who they are, not true at all. That's just their idea of themselves. And we just don't catch like how ridiculous that, that pattern is for some of us. I'll just repeat that last sentence. I notice that I have to pay careful attention in order to listen to others with an openness that allows them to be as they are or as they think themselves to be. The shutters of my mind habitually flip open and click shut and these little snaps form into patterns I arrange for myself. The opposite of this inattention is love, is the honoring of others in a way that grants them the grace of their own autonomy, and allows mutual discovery. And that's really what I like, you know, in terms of operationalizing love. Like, what does loving relationship, loving interaction, loving speech look like? This sort of dynamic of silence and speech and sharing. And it really, you know, as I mentioned earlier, and Wynn has talked about this, basis of kindness foundation of sensitive tender-heartedness humility exposure and then in this dynamic there's a kind of learning you know as we speak because we're sensitive or as somebody else is, uh, somebody else speaks we're sensitive and so that it's like that is often the missing ingredient Because we don't feel safe, because we've been hurt, maybe even traumatized by life, we somehow, unfortunately, get in these patterns where we think we can move through life without being exposed or without feeling, without sensitivity. And so the question is, to heal our relationships, we have to start over in places that are safe enough that we're willing to be sensitive Initially, it's just sensitive to our own hurt, our own, maybe for some of you, shutting yourself down, afraid to speak, for others, sort of filling the space because we're afraid of losing control. We've talked a lot about power, and there's this, maybe you caught it. It was a while back, I think more than 10 years ago, in the New York Times, some research that somebody wrote about This is in that uh, column they have in the New York Times. I think it's just called WELL, W-E-L-L, just about physical and mental health issues. Marital spats taken to heart. Yeah, No, 2007, so just about 10 years ago. And the author was Tara Parker Pope. She writes, Arguing is an inevitable part of married life. But now researchers are putting the marital spat under the microscope to see if the way you fight with your spouse can affect your health. Recent studies show how the couples, how couples fight and what they fight about usually doesn't matter. Now, isn't that interesting? Just that point. Instead, it's the nuanced interactions between them and how they react to and resolve conflict that appear to make a meaningful difference and the health of the marriage, and the health of the couple. So they studied 4,000 people. Let's see. Notably, 32% of the men and 20% of the women said they typically bottle up their feelings during a marital spat. So it's just interesting, that self-reporting. In men, keeping quiet during a fight didn't have any measurable effect on health. But women who didn't speak their minds in those fights were four times as likely to die during the 10-year study period <laughs> <laughs> as women who always told their husbands how they felt.? Right? According to the July report in the psychosomatic medicine in psychosomatic medicine, whether the women reported being happy in a happy marriage or an unhappy marriage didn't change the risk. The tendency to bottle up feelings during a fight is known as self-silencing. For men, it may simply be a calculated but harmless decision to keep the peace. But when women stay quiet, it takes a surprising physical toll. When you're suppressing communication and feeling, feelings during conflict with your husband, it's doing something very negative to your uh, physiology. In the long term, and you know... It's important, of course, that we change these words, husband and wife, because it's, it's really about dynamic, like understanding is the self-silencing part of a pattern that you know, is related to some sort of fear or self-hatred or yeah, shutting down oneself. Whether how you identify with gender is less important than the toxicity of that pattern. Um, Whether you're suppressing communication and feelings during conflict with your partner, it's doing something very negative to your physiology. And in the long term, it will affect your health, said Elaine Aker, an epidemiologist, who was the study's lead author. This doesn't mean women or anybody should start throwing plates at their partners but there needs to be a safe environment where spouses can equally communicate. You know, it's really what we do with the pain that comes with being a human being. You know, I mentioned early on that whether we like it or not, we're always navigating dynamics of power and there's really no way this is ever going to change. So it's just a question of what do we do with this world of power dynamics? How do we learn to inhabit it? How do we learn to see how those patterns, fear of power, greed for power, indifference or just being unaware of power, how it affects our speaking, our silence, how we are, how we interact with people. And this would be really useful just to talk about like uh, just the kind of stories we have like the point like as a human being in order to be happy we need power or we might have a story like any fixed idea is probably problematic. We might have a fixed idea that the world won't be okay until we all have equal power or nobody has power or you know something that we might call idealistic. Someone like me might call it idealistic like, well, I don't think that's going to happen. So how do we come right into the middle of that Place in our lives, in our relationships where we're navigating power and I mean basically we're finding a way to survive in terms of our sense of self, psychologically, emotionally, feeling good enough and then you know physically hopefully it's not often the main issue it's often more survival just in our in terms of our sense of self. And what do we build that on? And this is more the paradigm shift. You know, when we realize, as I mentioned earlier, around needs, how do we move in our relationships, show up in our relationships realizing, I have needs, you have needs, do you know my needs, do I know your needs here in this moment? How could we Make this a lot safer by somehow acknowledging that we have needs, and you know, I know your needs, and I know you know my needs well enough. Right? Like, in uh, I was mentioning the nonviolent communication, and Ann mentioned it as well. You know, they actually have you as one of the exercises, you repeat back. The person tells you what their needs are, and then you repeat it back to them so that they're clear that you've heard their needs well enough that you can repeat it back. Now imagine in some of our important relationships, you know, that I could say back to win, uh, what I'm hearing you say is that you have the need for, and to have her say back, yeah, it seems like you really heard what my needs are. Now that's a pretty, rare, I mean, not even that, that would have to be explicitly done in that way, but just anything in that direction Seems to be, you know, what I would consider a relatively wholesome relationship, a rare event that we would have that kind of clarity about what our needs are, what each other's needs are in our relationship. And if we don't do that work, then we enter all of our interactions hurting. We're tight, and then the tightness distorts our vision, like where we can't see clearly because we're hurting. And then you know where that goes, like when we're not clear and we're hurting, then we you know, then we act in ways, speak in ways, stay silent in ways that perpetuate the cycles of suffering. So just a couple other thoughts about this, like one way you know, that we see that when we're hurting and we're not clear, then these two main themes that Wyn and I have been talking about, like, I mean, there's we often relate them to what we would refer to as a more feminine quality that people who identify as males or females or some other, we can have that tendency to, when in doubt, be assertive, or we can have what we would maybe sometimes call a more feminine quality of when in doubt be receptive hold back right and we can then look at both of those tendencies of asserting like interrupting somebody with our speech assuming we know what they're about to say or where it's going so why, why bother to listen <laughs> or to check whether we really know you know because I, I know where this is going so I can or holding back you know And really getting a sense of those tendencies to be receptive, to be quiet, and the tendency to be assertive and forceful. So maybe I'll leave it here. And again, the general place here (coughs) for comments and questions is, um, so as we envision all of the different real places of our life, internal dialogue, interacting with our lovers, our partners, family, loved ones, dear friends, casual acquaintances, work scene, communities, wider communities that we're part of, even kind of language as it flows through the media, you know, the media forms these days. What is the vision of wise speech, wise relating. What does that picture look like? What are the qualities? And going back to what I said right at the beginning about the basic path the Buddha lays out is stabilizing this kind, wise, present moment awareness in order to purify view, attitudes, and action, speech. Right. So what is that kind of way of relating to each other look like in the messy, ordinary, real, mundane places of our life? What questions do you have? What visions do you have? Like, What might that look like? What might you want to pay attention to in places in your life to transform these different places you speak and relate? What comes to mind?
0: Um, one type of speech that I have some experience with is, um, that where someone, in some cases me, in some cases someone else, speaks on behalf of another person. And, um, I've, I've, um, had, had that happen to me where it didn't feel at all good. Um, I think. In every case, the the person doing it thinks they're being helpful, but um, it, it takes away your voice, and it, it it might be something you would choose not to say. So um, I have had the experience of that not being a good thing. I've also um, spoken for other people and then felt bad about it, that I, I shouldn't have done that. And um, this past week, someone at work told me about a situation at work with where I think she was is being sort of mildly bullied, and you know there was every temptation to to want to fix it for her, to want to go talk to someone about it and and she was um, very clear that she didn't want me to tell anyone and I w- having experienced this in the past um myself, i I knew that I didn't want to that I wouldn't as much as I would wanted to fix the situation. <clears throat> And um, it feels really good to see yourself, to, to have seen myself want to act and then <clears throat> realize that that was not the way to go. And um, I, I got your email this morning where <clears throat> you, you mentioned the, the bliss of blamelessness. And this woman keeps asking me, "Now you didn't tell anyone, did you and i and i just i f- I feel the the bliss of having not as much as I m- might have wanted to <laughs> um
2: so, as a young person, I was a liar um, to the point that at seven, my parents were investigated by the Department of Child Welfare because of lies I told. Um, I started a feud with neighborhood children by slandering um, them with graffiti. Um, so I've had like an opportunity throughout my life to see how um, easy it is to deceive, manipulate, and hurt other people. And I've got these examples of my past that I can look back on and go, wow. Wow. Um, that's really harmful. Um, so right speech is something that I, I really enjoy practicing. And I find that um, it's usually very simple. It's usually very direct. Um, and that's where I start. Um, even something is saying, I don't like this. I don't want this. Or I'm glad to see you. And I, I think, for me, just starting with those very simple, direct statements, um, well, it's just a really good place to start.
3: Yeah. So I'm Holly, and I um, grew up in the corporate world, and it if I wasn't always already biased that way I, it certainly has strengthened a real strong orientation towards sort of a, a male oriented speech I tend to interrupt I'm um, very assertive in my speaking patterns and I'm rewarded for it right like look at that gal she can really you know swim with the sharks kind of thing and that stopped feeling good about a decade ago and you know I had to work to unlearn that um and um, I'm in a 12-step program, and one of the things that I, one of the sayings in the program that's helpful for me, if for no other reason than, you know, the 10 seconds that I take to say it in my mind, um, is the phrase, does it need to be said, does it need to be said now, does it need to be said by me? And, um, and usually the answer is no, Right. <laughs> And just, you know, just going through the like, you know, I can usually, I'm almost always can like convince myself, yes, to the first two, right? Like, yes, absolutely. Yes. But by the time I get to the third, like, actually, there's probably someone else in the room that can say this, right? It just, it doesn't always have to be me. And, um, and that's just been a helpful thing that Maybe there are other women in the room that have over, you know, over developed their male communication side in order to, to, so it's interesting for me to listen to win because, you know, I sort of went the opposite path of like, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to learn it. And then it was kind of soul crushing and having to figure out how to do that a different way. So, you know, learning to make mistakes on both sides. I love that comment because now I'm having to, to learn something very different. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Um,
5: so the article that you read from New York Times um, brought back a memory um, about apparently with breast cancer and this isn't true of all breast cancer but apparently breast cancer does have a high correlation with not speaking your truth to the point that some people have a phrase, getting something off your chest. And so the importance of, you know, if there's something that you really feel needs to be said, to take that action.
1: And one of the things that shows up just in general in our practice is that, like just paying attention to the body and the mind, everything wants to move. I mean, that is so clear. The more we just spend hours in a place of relative mindful awareness, we see thoughts want to move, emotions want to move, sensation wants to move, sound, sight, everything wants to move. And the basic experience of dukkha or getting tired or suffering is somehow mistrusting that movement and closing it down, or owning that movement, making it me, whatever that movement is. And it's unhealthy. And that's just an example of what you're pointing to. Thanks, Marcy. I think Robin was next.
6: Thank you. This is a little bit off um, what you're talking about, I think. But what, a, what about um, with people who really don't what about with people who don 't really want to listen or don 't really want to truly don 't seem to want to communicate? I mean we have a you know example of that in the president, and how do you talk to people like that or, and in a way that 's open hearted and trying to help you know and i don 't mean i 'm not going to talk to donald trump but um, but I have a brother who won't hasn 't spoken to me in twelve years, and we don 't live in the same town, so you know I just um you know, what do you do with something like that? Uh, how can you be... How can you uh, have wise speech when you're not even, you know, part of the scene? Uh, and I imagine people that are around Donald Trump have the same problem, too. You know, people who want to communicate. And it's it's not about communication. It's just about whatever, you know, whatever screwy idea comes to, to mind to him. So anyway, I, I just I guess I just put that out there because... That's a problem um I think some of us have where if if the other party or the other parties aren't don't have the same intentions of actually communicating then how how do we communicate
7: um, yeah I, I don't feel like I have a particular uh Good answer to that, like when someone can't hear, when someone is in a place to can't hear you know that they can't hear, and especially if communication seems really essential, but they can't hear you know my my only my only reflection that comes to my m- mind I work for an organization um that's kind of about the protection of animals and and there's very specific kind of uh ideas about which groups we try to communicate with. One is like not big ag, like not big agriculture. Not, you know, because these people, there's no hearing. You just waste your breath and you exhaust yourself. You know, so it's like that self-preservation and not exhausting trying to speak to people that that can't hear you, um, that that's fruitless. But that's sort of my only, only, maybe in the room, maybe there's different experiences and ideas about like what to do. with a figure like, like Donald Trump, for whatever reason, you know, it's, communication is necessary, but can't
1: happen. And but what we can do is we can loosen the fixation on the idea that they can't listen, because th- what we can see directly in, in our own mind and heart is that that idea that they can't listen is toxic, right? Whether it's true or not isn't important, but the idea, repeating the idea that these people can't listen or big ag can't listen or some politician can't listen, it kind of shuts things down. And and it takes the responsibility away from here, which is everything just wants to move. So how do we let things move? How do we find a way for our compassion or whatever is moving in our life? it's our responsibility to find a way for it to move and it doesn't depend on our partner being healthy or wise or the president of the united states being a you know some kind of special person we should hold out the possibility that everything can move freely we can experience freedom no matter whether we live in a really oppressive situation certainly that would be harder to do it there or a really supportive loving Situation, but we're not going to put the blame on the external conditions for having a healthy relationship. And this is, I mean, just as a possibility to hold out that we can have a healthy way of relating no matter where we are, no matter who we're around. And I just like, as a hypothesis, just hold that out. Because I know one thing we'll stop trying. If we have the idea that I can't do it because this person is unhealthy or something like that.
6: Well, if someone won't absolutely won't talk to you, I mean, what are you? You know, what you don't, you can't talk to them. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and and in my other relationships, I don't have a huge problem. But, um, you know, just in the one particular one that, I mean, I don't feel like I have recourse. It's as if I've been, you know.
1: But ask yourself. How can Whatever you're feeling, how can it move? How can this move? It wants to move. What would be a skillful place, way for it to move? I don't know what that looks like. No, I don't either. Elaine might. We have people. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then we'll come to this side.
8: <laughs> well, I, ha- I do have an experience... Um, where exactly where I needed to help something. I mean, it was my responsibility to help it move because there was nothing I could do, okay. nothing I could do, is that all right, on the external. And it was with a situation of a, a boss that I had at work. And, um, you know, I got caught in the labels. Um, she She was known to be very cruel to, she'd pick out one person as the target. And I had seen this, and then all of a sudden she became my boss, and I was the target now, there was a, a mental health label put on her, which I think was true so but i so what I did was first thing is I went to therapy, but that was not was not well seriously i did and then i i anyway did a number of things, but the real turning point for me was um, a forgiveness workshop that I was not leading, but it was, um, um, anyway, I, I spoke with the person who was leading it, and I said, here's the situation. Do you have any suggestions for me? Because I'm having a really difficult time. And she said, I want you to think about starting good rumors about her. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know?" And she said, well, you know, I want you to see what could you say that would be true. Now this was, I could not make it up. Mm-hmm. It had to be true and it had to be uh, brought into a conversation naturally. So it wasn't anything artificial. That was one of the most helpful things that I was um, given as a suggestion. And so I... What that did for me was to change my whole view of her because I had this fixed view, absolutely, about her. And I, uh, and it was very painful, absolutely painful. But as I began to really look for something that was true, that I could say that was good about her, and then to bring it into a conversation naturally, It shifted in me. Everything shifted in me. And it was uh, taking responsibility. What could I do? Nothing I could do about out there. The other thing that was extremely helpful... Well, anyway, and so I began to do that, and it was really wonderful. I was doing loving-kindness. I was doing all kinds of things. Another thing that was extremely helpful for me was um, Tai Chi... Because it was about the body, and how was I carrying everything about this conflict in my body, and there was a movement that i i I wasn't doing correctly, and the instructor helped me see that my pose was very unstable and When I got into the stable position, it was so different, and I was really present. Actually, in a conversation with her one day, I was able to say something that resonated with that position of stability and grounded- groundedness. And I think it was the first time I was not afraid of her words and her threats. And I was able to speak from this place inside me, and I could feel... I thought, that's it. She no longer has power over me. And you know that two days later, she resigned.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I knew she'd have the answer.
8: So there you go.
1: <laughs> Time she. And it, Alice? <laughs>
6: that's pretty, that's quite helpful. I I think there's somebody all <laughs> the way
1: over here. Where? Uh, Where? Robert. Is yeah. it Robert?
9: Oh, okay. okay. I just wanted to sympathize with—I don't know your name. But I want to sympathize with your situation. I am I'm the youngest of nine children, and I have yes, it's very difficult at times. And it's like um, a lot of times I can live with them thinking my glass is half full, or I can live with them thinking my glass is half empty. But there was a time when my human rights were. Uh, uh, I don't want to say denied, violated, and it is like bone against bone. And I, on the way here, I heard on the radio how someone said, it's like, um, who drank my water? <laughs> it's not like whether I had a half full em- glass or a half empty. However I looked at it or however I dealt with it, I have, of course, like your situation, that was the answer to deal with it. And um, But when there is no water there, it's like... There's nothing moving, <laughs> I sympathize it, and you just live through it and be glad you have you find the silver lining of having siblings. <laughs>
10: I had an identical situation with a son, and we hadn't spoken. He didn't call and blah, blah, blah. He lives in California. And I kvetched in my mind about it for years. It bothered me. Of course it did. He's my son and blah, blah, blah. A friend of mine had a letter that she wrote to her daughter in this kind of situation, And and I asked for a copy of that letter. I reformed it to uh, to my situation with my son. And essentially the bottom line was, um, uh, I, I, I miss not speaking with you. I miss not seeing you. And I want you to know how proud I am of you and what you have done with your life. I know I, I love being with you and your son. And I, uh, and I ended it by saying that I do hope that there is some way that we can communicate with each other. And the big thing about it was that I stopped kvetching. I stopped thinking about it in my mind. I stopped ruminating about, oh, he yeah. never call I never hear from him, he doesn't reach. I stopped and I let go with that letter. And he still didn't communicate with me. And now he is. So I'm not saying that the letter created communication. What I am saying is that I communicated differently with myself, like we heard. Uh, and the letter is, was kind of a form letter. And I've given it to several people. And they have formed it toward uh, their, own, their own issue. But the main thing was the dialogue I was giving myself. And once I let go, I knew I had done absolutely everything I could to develop a relationship with him. And now I have one.
4: My name is Robert. And um, something that came up in our small group was, when do we speak here in the Common Ground community? And if we speak, Do we do it with like a one-upmanship, like I had this experience what no one else has had? And part of that is also that it is, for some of us, it's kind of difficult to make um, more meaningful friendships here. I know you make a sincere effort, uh, there's the quarterly meetings and quarterly gatherings and then... When you have a uh, when you do the sits, you have us turn to the left and turn to the right and say hello to everybody. And that's a funny thing for me because I'm New York and I'm used to riding on the subways, and that's something I don't do. I never turn left. <laughs> I never turn right. <laughs> I always look straight ahead. <laughs> but those are issues that come up for some of us. Um, hi,
5: I'm Becky. And I, um, um <laughs> it's interesting what you brought up, but, <laughs> um, my, um, uh, partner, um, went through a transition change, uh, uh, gender transition, um, three years ago started. And, um, so I really can relate to, um, what you said, um, in the last part about the messiness of life and, um, the, um the whole thing about fixed view um, because the quote you said about um, seeing people um, for who they are. And so every moment when we communicate, I, um, I need to uh, take a moment to uh, evaluate uh, myself and... This um, how I look at her, and uh, uh, my the the previous fixed view of who she was, and the present, and uh, it's very challenging, uh, but it's it's been a good challenge for me because it's really um, put that all to the test of how we look at people and, um, allowing them the freedom to be who they are, um, is such a beautiful gift and, uh, it, it it's a challenge, but it's really a beautiful gift. Thank you.
1: Time for maybe two more folks.
11: I just wanted to tell a story about, um, actually, it happened really close to here. I used to live on 35th Avenue, and um, there was a woman on the block who was um, a, actually a drug addict. And um, a lot of people on the block, and this is about trying to suspend what other people have said, but had said to me, she had come and asked for, to, to borrow some money. And um, people had said, she's stolen from me. She's and they gave all these examples of things that she had done that were difficult on the block. But for so- I don't know how I had the, the nerve or the strength, and I think she was looking for cigarettes that day. But she said, I'm trying to quit my addiction, and I'm, I, but I do need cigarettes. So um, I gave her some money, and, and then she came back another time, too, and, and I started getting nervous about that. But... Um, one day she <laughs> there was a little note on my car and there was the return of the money and she said i'm leaving this block but i'm i'm really going to try and um make my life better cuz i owe it to my granddaughter i i messed up my relationship with my daughter but it, it was so incredible to um to have uh, to experience that and to um so so that was one thing and then another time recently too i was I had a really conflictual relationship with um, a professor that I worked with, and he was always putting, I felt, putting me down and so forth. But, so one time I had a really honest discussion and a meeting with a lot of people, and um, it was really tough, and it ended up really harsh. And so it, in the end, though, I think it was positive, and, and he was in South Africa and came back, and he, brought, he knew he, that I loved uh, beautiful things, and he brought me this bracelet. I don't think he's ever, I don't know if he's ever done anything like, you know, it was really strange because he's an older gentleman too, and he he said, I saw this beautiful bracelet and I thought of you. And so it was just, I'm just giving two examples of, I guess, of hope of having, you know, in the spite of the the darkness or in spite of really hard things, that this beautiful hope can be alive, and I've seen the results of it, and so um, I just have really appreciated today and uh, thank you very much, and I, I just appreciate everyone in this room and how hard everyone's working um, to be a better human being. <laughs> and so thank you for saying the, how hard it is and how... Anyway, that's what I say. Um, I just wanted to um,
7: make you aware of a, a workshop coming uh, soon, November 18th, with uh, Spring Wash and Wisdom Rising, A Day Long for Women. So... Um, I'll just read this quickly. Within each woman there is an ever-flowing fountain of creative energy and innate wisdom. Join a diverse circle of women on the path of embodied presence in this day-long retreat designed to awaken and empower ourselves, whatever our age, ethnicity, body type, or sexual orientation. As women we share a common longing to heal our hearts, honor our interconnectedness, and take empowered action in the world. So that's just kind of in light of what we've been talking about today that's uh, coming up in November. So I think we can take a minute to just be in silence and stillness and then share the merit of our practice. So settling into the body and the heart, letting go of the words. And in sharing the merit, we can first acknowledge and appreciate our good efforts to come to the cushion, to practice, to get to know our minds and hearts, just appreciating our good effort, our wholesome effort. And with whatever benefits that we gain through our practice today, we can have the intention to spread that outward to our family, our communities, and even beyond. sharing and extending the benefit of our practice with others. So thank you, everyone, for coming out today. Um, and just a, just a note about Donna. Maybe some of you are new to the community and don't know. But everything that's offered uh, at Common Ground is offered in the spirit of generosity. Um, so we have this practice of offering the teachings freely. And if you feel moved to contribute, to kind of sustain um, these practices in the future, um, you're welcome to do so through your monetary contributions or supporting the center through your volunteer time. This entire place was built in the spirit of Donna and the, through the generosity of the community uh, on which it depends. So, okay.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs,